Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an exercise physiologist explains what the new exercise guidelines mean and the best way for people to stay active and healthy. Trying to address just getting people just to, to move, to kind of understand that the body was meant to move, it really wasn't meant to just be static. A professor who specializes in diabetes education tells how good non-judgmental communication between partners can reinforce relationships and improve diabetes self-management. To the patient, we said, how do you think your partner can help? So it was very much focused around diabetes, but also right. about working together and collaborating together. A registered dietitian nutritionist goes over what you need to know about diets low in carbohydrates. We talk about decreasing processed foods, because what happens with that? We get added carbs, we get added fats, we get added sodium. All that in a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about the helpful role a partner can play in diabetes self-management. Then we'll talk about low-carb eating with a registered dietitian nutritionist. But first, we'll learn what the new exercise guidelines mean for people who want to stay healthy. New physical activity guidelines have come out, and the short description of them is move more, sit less. But HealthLink on Air is going to get into greater depth with Carol Sames, who's in the studio with me today. She's an exercise physiologist and director of the Vitality Fitness Program at Upstate and an associate professor of physical therapy education. Welcome, Dr. Sames. Thank you, Amber. So let's talk about the science behind uh, the urging of people to move more, sit less. So the first physical activity guidelines came out 10 years ago. And in the intervening 10 years, there's been a great amount of research that's looked at sedentary behaviors. And certainly it's not surprising that as a society, we're sitting more. And the research has demonstrated that sitting is adversely linked to bad outcomes, specifically um, cardiovascular disease, um, metabolic syndrome, weight gain, um, and that over time, individuals that sit more and move less have uh, died prematurely. So that research has been replicated many times, and that's why these new guidelines are really emphasizing the importance that's of That's a little moving. startling when you put it like that. It really is. And in fact, uh, some of the newer research has found that um, even if I get up in the morning and I go out for a run and I sit for eight hours behind my desk, that I have poor metabolic um, outcomes. So it's not just a matter of I've got my 30 minutes in and I am good for the day. It's I need to think about activity kind of existing throughout my waking days or hours. So I want to get up from my desk, even if it's only for two or three minutes, just get up. It kind of resets that bad sleep mode that our body can go into. Wow, interesting. Now, are we sitting more because of electronics mostly? Well, like everything's I think it's on a computer these yeah, days. And I, I think it's just a combination. There are so many jobs where we are behind a desk. Um, we, we, you know, if you look at manufacturing jobs, there are certainly not as many of, of them. Right. And so there are a lot of jobs that do require us to sit. And certainly when we look at children, we see that there's increased sedentary behaviors amongst them. And, you know, it's easy to just say, let's blame the electronics. But, you know, I think maybe I'm not encouraging activity in my children or, you know, kind of prompting or, or having, you know, guidelines how long we can watch television or how long we should be uh, playing on games. Well, I've also seen an increase. I see advertisements on TV for desks that allow you to stand or walk while you're working yes. at, at your computer. Yes. So is that sort of trying to address that? That certainly is uh, trying to address just getting people just to, to move, to kind of understand that the body was meant to move, it really wasn't meant to just be static. And so if we can just encourage people to move and not to think about moving as exercise, but moving as a good thing for our bodies. Or walking farther across a parking lot or walking to the store or whatever. Yes, yard work, dancing. You know, we don't have to 
pigeonhole ourselves into those kind of traditional exercise activities, but just movement. We want to move more. Well, let's talk about there's some documented sort of immediate benefits from physical activity, right? Yes, and that's some of the newer guidelines that came out. When the original guidelines came out, most of the benefits were considered more long-term. But we now know that there are immediate benefits, um, such as a reduction in anxiety, um, uh, a reduction in um, stress that you can measure by cortisol levels, um, better sleep, um, and there's also changes in insulin sensitivity that can occur after one bout of exercise. And these are documented, proven. Right, we have research, substance. absolutely. Also a decrease in blood pressure. So really immediate impacts that you see right after a single bout of exercise. And then there's also the long-term, right? Yes. So the traditional long-term benefits of, of activity, well, we would spend all morning discussing them, but cardiovascular disease, a reduction in that, um, a reduction in death from cardiovascular disease, um, and certain types of cancer. The new guidelines address some of the newer benefits. Um, it used to be colon and breast cancer, and now it also includes bladder, endometrium, esophageal, kidney, stomach, and lung cancer. Um, some of the new guidelines also um, have seen strong evidence suggesting a uh, not prevention of dementia, but a decrease in the decline. So there's a, dementia is, is a catch-all for many different types of cognitive, cognitive decline. decline. So, but exercise, it looked at people as they've aged and individuals that are more active have less incidences of cognitive decline. Wow. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with exercise physiologist Carol Sames, and we're talking about the new physical activity guidelines for Americans. So what are the new recommendations? Do they talk about uh, amount of time per day or? So they do kind of give you a kind of a, a very comprehensive um, continuum of activities. So we start with children ages three to five, preschoolers, and the guidelines are that we need to keep children active, whether it be light, moderate, or vigorous activity. Preschool children should be engaged in about three hours of activity a day. You know, if you think about young kids, they play. Um, we don't want to plop them down in front of a television and say, sit here. Um, of course, I think what we're going to find in, in, in years to come is that we can look at children and see how they progress into adulthood and older adulthood and then be able to see from maybe some sedentary behaviors that were established in young childhood how that impacts. We don't have that research yet. but And then there's children that they just, from ages 6 to 17, that whole adolescent phase. And the guidelines uh, remain um, 60 minutes a day. And that activity is moderate to vigorous. Three days a week, it should be vigorous. And the way we differentiate between moderate and vigorous is moderate is I can carry on a conversation as I'm walking. Vigorous is where you really start to know an increase in breathing, and I'm having a little bit more time, difficult time talking with you. And so that uh, that age group should do three days of vigorous activity. They should also do muscle strengthening and bone loading activities. So muscle strengthening could be you know, the monkey bars. It, it could be doing things that are body weight exercises. Um, and bone strengthening is skipping and hopping and running and those types of activities. Um, because um, one of the premises is that we may develop osteoporosis later in life where it's clinically diagnosed, but it starts in childhood. And the exercises or activities you described aren't necessarily things that you would have to go to a gym to do. It sounds like playground Absolutely. activities, right? Just getting up and moving. And again, um, if you you know, if you kind of look at children at a playground, you know, generally speaking, you see them running and jumping, and and so they're the activities to encourage active play. And it could be more traditional things, but it could also be non-traditional things, you know, um, doing work around the house, not that's a great thing, you know, push lawnmowers. Right, exactly. So all of that activity counts. 
Are there uh, specific, uh, are pregnant women addressed in the guidelines? Yes, for the first time, uh, pregnant women. So women, both during pregnancy and postpartum, which is one year post-delivery, women should be getting 150 minutes, minimally, of moderate activity. If a woman has already been engaged in more uh, vigorous types of activities, she can continue them through pregnancy and postpartum. And they're really stressing the postpartum, um, that it's not just being active during pregnancy, but also postpartum. And that women should um, be under the care of a healthcare provider, and that um, they should talk to them about the types of activity they're doing, and they should be monitored during their pregnancy. But a woman who's, say, a runner, um, when she becomes pregnant, can Continue. most likely continue to safely run. Right, right. And, um, you know, certainly she wants to have the health care provider, to, you know, check the, the, the child and make sure that everything is going well with the pregnancy. And that's a big change. I know when I had my children back in the 90s, my OBGYN wasn't, was like, you still want to run? And I was like, yes. I do want to run. And so I had heart rate guidelines, um, but uh, these new guidelines don't give any heart rate um, guidelines, just moderate activity. Well, and depending on how the pregnancy progresses, though, there there may be some aches and pains and some mobility issues that Absolutely. come up. But um, I don't know, walking on a treadmill? Are there, are there ways that if you had been very active before, but you're not feeling it so much, there's still ways that you can... Get Abs- in your moves, right? Absolutely. And again, the, we want to move. We just want to make sure that we're continuing to move. Um, and it doesn't have to be the more traditional types of activities. So are there specific guidelines for older adults, um, seniors? Yeah. Yes. So when we talk about older adults, the, the guidelines are actually the same as, as middle-aged adults. And that is a minimum of 150 minutes per week of moderate activity, um, up to 300 And then for vigorous activity, 75 minutes per week, up to 150. Now, what's interesting is the guidelines also say that you can derive even additional health benefits by going over the minimum and even over the maximum. So there are additional health benefits to be gained. You can also combine both moderate and vigorous activity. Um, For older adults and middle-aged adults, they also recommend strength training, muscle loading activities, because we need muscle to move. And as we get older, we actually naturally lose muscle mass. And so it's really important to do two days a week, major muscle groups of some type of muscle strengthening types of activities. It doesn't have to be free weights. It could be body weight activity. It could be band activity. You know, it could even be carrying my groceries, putting them away. Um, doing yard work. So that's really important. When you say body weight activity, are you? is it things like push-ups? So it can be push-ups. It can be wall squats. It can be like sit-to-stands out of a chair. Okay. Um, and so people will be like, how hard can that be? Well, for some individuals, standing up out of a chair can be challenging. And we want to make sure that we have mobility as we get older. I could do single leg get out of a chair with my arms crossed, not using the arms on the chair. So Body weight um, activities are very effective, and they tend to be functional activities, and they tend to be multi-joint activities. The last thing for older adults is that they should engage in two days a week of balance-type activities, because we know there's an increased risk of falls as we get older, and so balance types of activities uh, should also be included in, in that weekly activity. When I think of balance, I think of yoga Yes. One example. Are there Mm -hmm. others? Um, Certainly. I mean, I could even do things like walking, like trying to walk on a tightrope. Or I could try walking in a hallway where it would be safe with my eyes open, eyes closed, to also kind of get some proprioceptive. Um, I can work on, you know, stepping off a step, back up onto a step. Certainly there's a strength component to that also, because we know strength is associated with balance. Now, people that maybe um, have mobility issues or they're in a wheelchair, do the exercise guidelines address that? Yes. So we want all individuals to move, regardless of chronic disease or disability. And the same um, guidelines apply 150 minutes a week. Now, what the guidelines do address is that we want to make sure that if somebody has been sedentary for a long period of time, any movement 
is good movement, uh, as long as it is safe. Um, so that if I can only go for a couple of minutes, that's where I start. That I want to make sure that the activities that I select are safe for me. Um, that um, you know, I don't try to go from zero to hero in a week right. because that's just going to set me up for failure. The whole idea of of movement is that it's a it's a lifestyle. It's not a five week, six week, eight week fix. Um, you know, this is something that we want to do consistently. And that also kind of gets into maybe a safety issue too. If you try to do too much too quickly, right? Or I I say to myself, oh, it's okay that it's snowing outside. I'm going to go outside and do something. Whereas I might say to myself, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna walk inside today. Um, I can walk laps in my house. It may be a little boring, but the sidewalk isn't plowed. It may be slippery. Um, you know, it, it's kind of the common sense. Or if it's really hot outside, you know, I'm not dressed appropriately. Um, just kind of using the common sense with the safety guidelines. And the guidelines talk about that, right? Yes, they absolutely of... do. Um, that, you know, we need to kind of think of ourselves and where what we want to do in relationship to where we are fitness-wise. So if I haven't been running, I don't want to go out and run. You know, I want to walk first um, and then gradually maybe jog a little, walk a little, and, and, and gradually progress. Well, thank you so much. This is very good information. My guest has been exercise physiologist Carol Same. She's the director of the Vitality Fitness Program at Upstate and an associate professor in the College of Health Professions. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. How people with diabetes can improve self-management with the help of their partner on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Diabetes is a chronic condition that affects how sugar is processed by the body. The condition impacts a person's overall health, and that person has to take an active role in the management of their diabetes. Some medical caregivers are pursuing something called partner intervention as a way to help improve diabetes self-management. And here to talk about that is Paula Treef. She's a distinguished service professor at Upstate in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Welcome, Dr. Treef. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the impact of diabetes, not just um, physically on the body, but the psychology of the person who's got diabetes. Well, like most chronic illnesses, it obviously has a significant impact. Um, there are there's evidence that people with diabetes are more likely to be depressed, not necessarily more likely to be depressed than people with other chronic illnesses, but still compared to the general population, more likely to experience anxiety. Um, there's a fair amount of anxiety associated with diabetes, uh, especially about the onset of complications. Um, complications like heart disease and stroke and uh, sexual dysfunction, blindness, those are all very significant uh, potential results of diabetes. And so if someone doesn't have a complication, they're often really anxious about developing one. And if someone does have one, of course, then they have to uh, cope with that and manage that. Um, and diabetes, more than most diseases, is very much a disease of behavior. So the person with diabetes has to check their blood sugar regularly. Uh, if they're type 1 diabetes, they have to check you know, six to eight times or more a day. Um, they have to give themselves um, insulin potentially or take oral medications. They have to change their diet, their activity. They, If they get complications, they have to see a lot of different specialists. So there's a lot of change that the person has to take 
has it to sounds like a substantial, it takes a lot of adjustment. time and adjustment. Right, um, right. Now, what about uh, if they have a partner in their life? Does it impact? Do you see that? Yeah, so um, it, it certainly does just, again, just like really anything. I mean, since this is a significant disease for the person, we know that the partner is going to be affected by it. So we, we do know that partners also have this anxiety, um, worried about what the future is going to hold uh, for their loved one, of course. Um, there's a, a specific fear for people with diabetes especially people on insulin, of hypoglycemia, which is very low blood sugar. And that can be very a significant episode where people um, lose consciousness or get confused or um, uh, potentially have seizures or strokes. So um, that when that happens, that's kind of traumatic with a little T, and that's a big fear that partners have, especially, again, partners of people with type 1 diabetes because they're using insulin. They have to use insulin. Um, and it so would fall to them, them to help the person out of that episode. Right. So, In that moment, yeah. they have to do something. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, let's talk about how you got involved um, with the idea that partners can play a role in helping manage this disease. Um, th- that actually came out of my clinical work. So I've been seeing patients with diabetes for many, many years. And um, it's just very clear when you talk to patients that how this affects their partner has an effect on them, but also what their partner does has an effect on them. And that, again, kind of makes sense. You know, the, your partner is your most significant relationship. It's an intimate relationship. It's ideally a long-lasting relationship. So, of course, what happens with one person is going to affect the other. So that just became clear in my clinical work, and I started exploring it then from a research perspective. So can you tell us about the um, randomized controlled trial that you conducted recently? Yeah. So we did a a project called the uh, Diabetes Support Project. Um, This is, I've been working for many years with my collaborator and colleague, Dr. Ruth Weinstock, who is the medical director of the Jocelyn Diabetes Center. And um, what we did was we developed a partner intervention um, for behavior change, with the idea being that to help the partner help the patient make the changes that he or she needs to make. And we compared that to a very comparable individual intervention, and then we compared it to just diabetes education. We know that diabetes education itself um, has a significant positive effect on behaviors and on blood sugar control, which is the usually the main outcome that everybody looks at. Um, what was really unique about this, besides the intervention, I think, was that there have been a few other partner intervention trials and a few uh, family interventions, but what they do is they create an intervention and then they compare it to just usual care, which means nothing new for the person. Um, And that doesn't really tell you, even if you find a difference, that doesn't really tell you that bringing in the partner made a difference. That just tells you that doing something is better than doing what we normally do. So comparing this couple's intervention to an individual one to education was really the unique part. Um, our main outcome was blood sugar control, uh, which is measured as hemoglobin A1C. It's called A1C, which is a measure of blood sugar control over the last two to three months. And what we found was actually that all three groups, the education, the individual, and the couple's arms, um, had decreases in A1Cs, which again proves to us that um, education works. Uh, but we, uh, when we looked at it um, by, this is confusing a little, but by what they're original A1C was, we found that the people who had very high A1C, very high is bad, high is, higher is worse. Okay. So the people who had very high, like greater than 9%, for, for diabetes, for type 2 diabetes, you're trying to get 7% or lower. So the people who had greater than 9%, which is really quite high, all three groups improved, and they improved significantly. For the people with kind of lowish high, which was 75 to uh, 8.2%, none of the groups improved. And for the people in the middle, which is 8.2 to 9.2, which is the uh, the group that we mostly see, only the coupled intervention had an effect. Huh. Um, so that was, we thought that was encouraging <laughs> yeah. in terms of, yeah, it really did matter, bringing in the partner and getting them um, involved. And the other thing was that people are always often worried about bringing in partners because they're worried that um, partners will become what's commonly called the diabetes police, which is that they'll be kind of hovering and nagging and, oh, no, you shouldn't do that. And so there's a hesitancy often to bring in partners. But we also found that that was not the case, that um, it certainly some individual 
groups it was, or individuals it was, partners, but that overall that was not the case. And in fact, the patients, their their feelings about their relationship improved when the couple, when the partner was involved. Um, and interestingly, the partner's feelings about the relationship also improved. And also their, their worry about diabetes also improved. So it had a positive effect on the partners that were involved too. If I understand correctly, the couple's intervention included obviously both partners, but it focused on relationship building, problem solving techniques, and mutual support, which all kind of sounds similar to marriage or couples counseling. Yeah. Is that what it was? It wasn't couples counseling, meaning that the, the people who were doing the intervention were diabetes educators, and they weren't couples therapists or anything like that, and they weren't specifically focusing on what the problems might be in that relationship. Um, the way it did what you just said was that we brought the partner in, and in all of the, um, we had little exercises that they did and things they had to read, and all of those, we always turned to the partner and said, so what, about, what do you think about this? How do you think you can help? And to the patient, we said, how do you think your partner can help? So it was very much focused around diabetes, not, but also right. about um uh, working together and collaborating together. Um, and the other the other part was that we had a couple, we did this all by telephone, and we had a couple of calls where it was specifically about the relationship. And we did this one technique that's quite powerful but very simple. It's called the speaker-listener technique. And it basically means that you the, the couple decide we're going to talk about this issue where there's a conflict, and one person just says what he or she thinks and feels about it, and the other person just says paraphrases what they've heard. I think what you're saying is, I guess what I'm hearing is, which is kind of what therapists do, um, until that first person feels heard. So normally when we have a discussion about conflict, you know, if, if my partner says to me, well, I'm upset about this, my immediate reaction is, well, I don't think you should be upset about that. Let me tell you what my feeling is about it. And you kind of defend ourselves. And with the speaker-listener technique, you can slow that all down. And the partner who's listening just has to listen and then they take turns and that way the uh everybody feels heard feels and heard. it was really quite powerful i listened to we taped these and i listened to a lot of the tapes you know to make sure people were doing what they were supposed to be doing and um it was surprisingly powerful i would say this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Paula Treef. Um, she's a distinguished service professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate, and we're talking about improving diabetes self-management. So what sorts of advice would you have for partners who may be listening to this podcast in terms of how can a loved one be supportive without, as you say, turning into the diabetes police? What can they yeah, do? Yeah, so, th- so this is a very fine line that partners walk, and I don't have a great answer for it other than that the you know it's like what you say in couples counseling it's communication 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 you have to be talking to each other and saying what do you need from me how can I help you and the patient has to do that for the partner too because we talked earlier about that this has an effect on the partner and the patient has to kind of recognize that too that this is it's not all about them and their illness that this has an effect on their partner so there has to be um, good discussion where they share their feelings, their fears, um, and what they need from each other. Um, the other thing is there are a lot of ways to provide support. So sometimes support is, you know, uh, going to the doctors with the person, with the patient. Going to the doctor appointments. Yeah, going to a doctor appointment. Or in some cases, it's helping, uh, reminding the person to take their medication because they want that reminder, not because you think they need that reminder. Um, it might be exercising together. Uh, it might be just sitting and talking about, you know, how are you feeling emotionally. So there's a lot of ways that we give support, and it's kind of up to the couple to, to say, this is helpful to me, and this is not. So, you know, one person might really want their spouse to go to the doctor's appointment. Another person would say, absolutely not. You know, this is my appointment, meeting with my doctor, and there's no right way to give support. So they have to spend a little time really talking about what they need from each other. And then the last piece is that the partner has to accept, and this is that fine line, that, that the patient, that this is their disease and um, that they have autonomy. There's research that supports this, that patients who feel that um, partners who support their autonomy, who say, look, I know this is your disease, this is not mine, you make the decisions, um, do better. Now, that's hard because if you're the partner and you're worried about 
you're not taking your medication and what's going to happen to you, that's very hard to say, well, this is your disease. So they have to, that's a very fine line. And they have to find their way as a couple. Are there things um, sort of like that people should not do? I'm thinking about if there's certain foods that the person with diabetes should avoid should you, I mean, it's not good to eat that particular food in front of them? or So diabetes isn't really a disease anymore where um, people say you can't have that and you can't have this. It's really about balancing. It's be- really about balancing carbohydrates more than okay. anything. So, they, so people with diabetes can have carbohydrates, but they can only have a certain amount or at certain times. Um, again, the type 1 differs from type 2 here. Uh, it's really eating healthy. It's eating vegetables and fruits. So certainly if, uh, if, some way, if your partner has diabetes and you're bringing in big goop, goopy donuts, you know, donuts and, and you're saying, hey, you want some, now that's not very supportive. So, so paying attention to um, what will make it harder for the patient to stick with the, their regimen I think is really um, important. And certainly, you know, we've seen there's also research that says that if one person makes a change, the other person might make a change, and, and that can help them. So we have partners where, you know, they say, look, I'm going to eat what you eat, and, and we're going to walk together, and I'm going to lose weight too. Um, very often people with diabetes have partners who have diabetes or also might be overweight, and overweight is a uh, being overweight is a risk factor for diabetes. So, um, sure, making positive changes themselves and modeling those changes would help. And certainly, if you don't have diabetes, it's, you can still follow this a diet that's it's a healthy, healthy diet. It's honestly, so. it's a healthy diet. It's a healthy diet and being active. It's just like good for everybody. If a couple uh, where there's diabetes in the relationship, it, would couples counseling, in general, maybe help them get through? this time where they have the... Um, It may, yeah. I mean, I think that there's, you know, if you hit an impasse, a couple's counselor essentially is there to help generally to help you communicate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you hit an impasse and you feel that this is causing more tension and and you're getting further apart rather than closer together, this is the the plus side. There's a plus side. We've had many couples who said, you know, now that we're working together and I'm helping her and she's helping me, I feel much closer to her and I feel much more appreciative of the relationship. So it's not only um, negative, Uh, but if you hit an impasse and it's damaging the relationship, you absolutely would benefit from couples counseling. Even, uh, you know, Michelle Obama talks about... uh, going to right. couples counseling right. in her new book. So, uh, Well, how would you advise a partner who's watching their loved one with diabetes not take care of themselves? They're eating wrong. They're skipping medications. I mean, it's got to be hard to stand by and watch right? And without intruding or nagging right. or whatever. Right. How do you? It's very hard. Um, I, I think that calls for a really serious conversation about um, the effect of this on the partner. You know, when I see you, when I know that you're not taking your medication, that makes me really nervous, makes me anxious. Um, I love you. I want a future together. And you know, you know and I know that if you don't do the best you can to take care of your diabetes, we'll have a less happy future and maybe a shorter future. Um, so kind of speaking from the heart, I think, is, the, is when you get that kind of... Um, Reaction. I did have a couple once where um, this wasn't a diabetes couple. It was a heart disease. People, he'd had a heart attack. But they, she was very hovering, and he was very resistant to the hovering. He was very frustrated. And she told me that the turning point came for her when it was a very hot day, and she saw him cleaning their pool, and he was sweating, and she was getting really anxious and worried, thinking he should relax, he should sit down, he should drink something. And she was going to say something, but she held back just for a little bit because they'd had this conversation where he said, I don't want you, you know, hovering. And then she saw him stop and sit down and drink something. And she said it was like the first time she felt like he can do this and I can back off. And she got a little trust in his being wanting to work towards change. You know, everybody wants to be healthier. Nobody is not motivated to be healthier. So they have to really think about what the barriers are, you know, in the individual case. Well, good advice. Thank you so much. My guest has been professor and psychologist, uh, Dr. Paula Treef. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, 
what you need to know about low-carb diets. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Can a diet low in carbohydrates help you lose weight? Today I'm going to talk with a registered dietitian nutritionist about the low carb diet trend. With me in this HealthLink on Air studio is Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. So there was a study recently published in the journal BMJ that showed overweight adults who cut carbohydrates from their diet and replaced them with fats were able to sharply increase their metabolism and burn more calories a day. Is that something that would work for everyone who cut carbs? Well, I think that is the question of the year. Um, What works? Is it carbs? Is it fats? Is it calories? And I think that's where people are struggling, and that's why there's so many new diets or fad diets that are out there because they're trying to find out what's going to work for me. Um, I think it's a question that's still to be answered. There's so many, you could look at one study and it's going to say low fats versus low carb really doesn't make a difference. Um, It's more about the quantity and quality of the food that you're selecting. Then you could look at another study and it says one other thing. This one particularly um, was actually talking about um, helping showing that people can burn a little bit more for weight maintenance. So the people have already lost the weight and that they saw a difference in carbs. So I think as we do more research and there's more scientific studies about it, long-term studies, I think that's the issue. Is it carbs? Is it fat? Is it calories? I think it's a question we still have to look at and it has to be answered. But increasing metabolism help does help the body because burn. you're helping. Yep, you're burning so more calories. So if you can figure out a way to right. do that, then mm-hmm. that. Now, are they still um, considering that all calories are equal, or is that up for debate? Well, I, I think we still consider it because, again, I think when you look at those things, if you if you cut down carbs, you've obviously cut calories in some form. If you've cut out fats, you must have cut calories in terms of it. Um, but I do think it's a question that they're looking at is, is it calories or is it where your food sources are coming from? So, again, I think that's another new question that um, scientists are going to look into, and we're going to have more and more studies and more and more research about it. So there was another remarkable study um, earlier this year that compared low-fat and low-carb diet for weight loss. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little about Um, that? Yes. um, It was done through Stanford, and it's actually the kind of cool name is a diet fit study. And so they had all these hypotheses thinking, okay, we're going to see if it's a low-carb or a low-fat diet. Their hypothesis basically went out the window, and they said, wow, it didn't really matter in terms of it, which the um, gardener who did part of the study was like, this is amazing. This is so interesting. And he said he got three key takeaways was in terms of we should look at decreasing our processed foods, okay, decreasing added sugars, and his key was make vegetables more interesting so we increase our vegetable intake. Mm. So it kind of goes back to, I know we've talked a lot about in terms of we're looking at more plant-based, we're looking at more going to the market, whole foods. And um, in this study, they really, really concentrated, and I thought it was a key thing, they concentrated on the quality of the food. They talked to people about going to the farmer's market, um, going towards whole grains, staying away from those processed foods, looking at what they drank and what they ate. And it's something that I know we've, we continue to talk about in people. What are you doing and what do you need to change? But I thought those key things were, you know, we talk about added sugars all the time. We talk about in terms of heart health. We talk about it um, in so many different ways. We talk about decreasing processed foods because what happens with that? We get added carbs. We get added fats. We get added sodium. All the things that we're looking at people to say, maybe we need to decrease a little bit. So if you uh, remove processed food or decrease processed food and um, added sugar from your diet and you increase vegetable intake, that's kind of a low-carb way of That's, eating, right? Yeah, mm-hmm, definitely, but a healthier low-carb A way. healthier low-carb. Because you can go low-carb, but are you going towards a healthy choice, or is it more of an unhealthy choice? Well, let's talk about what exactly is a carbohydrate. Okay. Carbohydrates are one of the three. There's three macronutrients that make up food, carbohydrate, protein, and fat. Carbohydrate's one of them, okay? An important thing, I think, because we need it as our energy source. If we don't have it, we 
carbohydrates are used up in the body, gives us our glucose source, okay? Gives us our gas for our tank. Um, are, let me ask you, are, are carbs in all food? Is no, carbs are in mainly in terms of your fruits, your vegetables, your plant-based foods, and your dairy products. Okay. Then they're added to foods, so um, carbohydrates in the form of table sugar, brown sugar, then they can be added to foods. But that's where we look at the difference in terms of is it your carbohydrate coming from a fruit, a vegetable, a plant base? Okay. Or is it coming from soda, candy, cookies, those kinds of things? All righty. Are there different types of carbs? There are. There are different types. There's, um, and I have a worksheet, um, uh, kind of a link for you and everyone to look at. Uh, sugars. So sugars are found naturally in fruits, vegetables, dairy products. There are also things such as your table sugar, your brown sugar. And where are those? Those are usually typically added to foods. Then there's something called sugar alcohols, um, found naturally in small amounts of um, fruits and vegetables. Those are also chemically produced, so they're added to foods to kind of call what they call the reduced calorie type things when people look at what's a sugar alcohol in this sugar-free food. Um, so again, people need to be aware of that's a carbohydrate. And then starches. Starches are found in your whole grains, your vegetables, your dried peas and beans. They can also be added to foods to stabilize food. And then fiber. Um, fiber coming from your plant base, your fruits, your vegetables, your skins, your seeds, your nuts, those kinds of things. Very good fiber, which is very important because fiber we know can help make people feel full and satisfied. So those are some of the quick, easy breakdown in terms of what are carbs. I think everyone has gotten the idea that carbs are bad, but I think carbs are good. Carbs are healthy. We need carbs. So they do things for our body that mm -hmm. are positive. They give us that energy source that we need in terms of it, definitely. It, energy source and, and the fiber to make us feel and full. The and the fibers to make us feel full, help with heart health, help with any um, digestion issues, constipation, or those kinds of bowel regularity things that people need, just for good, good health. Okay. Well, um, how does a person go about monitoring the amount of carbs that are in their diet? Well, my thing is always I, I relate to people, take a food diary, look at things, write down what you eat. You know, what are you drinking? What are you eating? Where are you getting your food sources from? Um, is it a processed food? Look at it for a week. Look at it for a weekend. And then actually look at, do you think you're higher in carbs or do you think you're lower in carbs? Do you think you're higher in fat? Again, I think it's looking at it from your own perspective. What are you doing in terms of it? It's not just because someone next, next to you at the office or something is on a ketogenic diet. It's like everyone eats differently. And I think we all need to look at what are we doing. And then where do you need to make changes? If you think you're higher in added sugars through soda or, you know, fruit-based juices or beverages, maybe that's where you need to start making the changes. So how do you know how many carbs you should have per day? Well, the typical dietary guidelines give you a percentage. They say anywhere from like 45 to 55, 60%, okay, of your caloric intake. So you can go to the dietary guidelines because those will give you guidelines in terms of it. Um, generally, those are things like in terms of, um, you know, 45 to 50%. I think years ago, we probably were on the higher level. Anything in terms of a high level now is considered 60 to 65% over, which probably is a little too high, I think, in terms of it. I recommend in that moderate range, it could be in that 40 to 50, 55%. Um, I think those are good things. So again, People don't have to do it like we do and take a percentage of calories and break it all down. You can use the dietary guidelines. They'll show you. They'll give you a calorie level. The, my plate will take that all that information and gear it towards you in terms of what your calorie needs are, too. And then the remaining percent is for your protein Your and protein fats? and your fat. Okay, because mm -hmm. you yep. do need those as, as right. well. Right. Um, I kind of did something to, to show you in terms of, like, if you were looking at a moderate intake and, say, you were doing 1,500 calories, so about 45%, if, if you can't in terms of that moderate level, that would be a rough estimate of about 112 grams of carb. If you go towards the very low, we're talking 30. 30 grams of carb, you could have maybe one and a half cups of vegetables and a slice of bread or one small piece of fruit in a day. In a day. In a day. Mm -hmm. So when people talk low carb and that very low carb range is in that 20 to 50 grams per day, it is very restrictive, I feel. I could not exist on one slice of bread or one small piece of fruit. And I think that's where we've talked about portions. Do people really know what one small piece of fruit looks like? One small piece of fruit could be, nope, it could be your medium piece of fruit. And you could be at that 30 grams of carb. And that's all and that's you all have you for, the day. for the day. Wow. And then what are, you, what are you replacing it with? 
proteins, fats, and are they good fats? Are they healthy fats? Are they lean meats? Are you eating a lot of cheese, which could give you a lot of fat content? So that's where I think that people have to be careful. You know, what's that level? Just because someone is doing 30 grams, is it sustainable? Can they do it? How long can they do it? And is it realistic for them? I Personally, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'd love it. People ate more vegetables, and I think that's great. If you ate two cups of vegetables, okay, yeah, you're getting 30, maybe 40 grams of carb. That's, that's awesome. But what are you missing out on? Well, fruit. We're missing out on you know, vitamin C. We're missing out on potassium. And you're also, at that point, you're really restricting your fiber intake if you're not getting those whole grains that we talk about all the time. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin about low-carb diets or low-carb eating. So is it safe, is it healthy and safe to eat low-carb? Again, that point would be how low are you going to go? Like right. the limbo, how low are you going to go? If you're going to go to that 30 grams per day, I do not think that's a healthy choice in terms of it. If you're going to look at a moderate and you're saying, I've been eating too many processed foods, chips, crackers, or, you know, those kinds of things, or I've been drinking too much sweetened drinks or cappuccinos, and then I'm going to moderate and bring that down. I think that's an important thing to look at. How can I make that healthy? I don't think the low, personally, the low-carb ones are a healthy approach because, to me, you are eliminating so many good nutrient-dense foods. You know, you're restricting those. You're restricting fruits, vegetables, whole grains that give us great nutrients, give us that fiber. So you said nutrient-dense. What Mm -hmm. does that mean? So if you're looking at it in terms of are you looking at a slice of whole grain bread that has good fiber, vitamin Bs, those kinds of things, versus maybe, you know, people talk about a slice of white bread. It has to, everything has to be brought back into that bread. It has to be enriched and fortified, those kinds of things. So you're missing out on those kinds of things. Are you, eat, are you having a cookie versus a fresh apple? Um, are you eating maybe um, peas and corn instead of more broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, those kinds of things? Um, look at what your choice is. And so you're getting out of that food, your best choice is you're getting good nutrition, you're getting potassium, you're getting vitamin C, you're getting fiber. Rather than processing, when you think about it, what is processing doing? It's taking a lot of it out and then they add it back in by fortifying or enriching it. Why not go towards the regular whole food that are already? Now, is there anything that we um, would miss out on if we didn't have, if we didn't eat processed foods with added sugars, um, would we miss out on anything nutritionally? Not if we're replacing with those good whole okay. grains and we're replacing with those nutrient-dense foods. And if, if we're getting our, our sources of carbohydrates from a, an apple, you know, rather than a thing of soda, um, no, I don't think you're missing out. Again, it's about your choices. Yes, you could be missing out if your selections aren't good. Um, you know, it's the same thing when we talked about are you switching from the carb and you're going towards high-fat animal products. You, you still need to look at and be aware of it. And that's where I think... Through the the guidelines, they're talking about choose a variety of foods so we can look at the more we get, the more we're getting different choices of the different foods. Well, let me ask you, people that might want to follow, and there's the keto diet, the paleo diet, there's a bunch of the lower carb Atkins and things like that. Mm -hmm. What would they experience if they started following the diet and they took added sugar out and pastas and cereals and white breads? What, What would their body, would they start craving sugar? Um, actually, um, there's a thing that they kind of label it. They call it the keto flu. Some, some articles will call it the keto flu in the first couple weeks. Um, you can experience things such as nausea, weakness, dehydration, headaches, okay, because of all the changes that your body's going through. Um, so those are more of the key things. I haven't read, really seen anything in terms of, you know, are you craving less sugar or more sugar, those kinds of things. It's more your body adjusting to that in terms of it. Um, people will probably, because you're going towards more the tendency, I should say, is to go towards more high-fat things. So people tend to think, oh, I'm not hungry, I'm full, I'm satisfied. Because if you're switching to that keto or other those lower carbs, you're steering away from carbs, but you're putting more of those fats in. And fats tend to make you feel more full and satisfied. Um, Same with the protein, makes you feel more full and satisfied. So you might experience those kinds of things. And are you going to experience weight loss? More than likely, people are going to experience weight loss because it's probably been a change. It's probably a decrease in the calories. Um, I think after a while, you can only eat so much cheese and bacon and, you know, fatty foods. So maybe it's a decrease in calories. And I think that's one thing we need to look at in the studies, too. What's happening? You know, is it a keto because it's working because of calories or I'm just not eating as much? 
Does it uh, make you, uh, would you end up eating at home more, or is it difficult to eat out on a low-carb? Uh, actually, I've seen some restaurants, I've seen one in here in particular that advertises, oh, we, we have keto appetizers and we have keto things. So I don't think in terms of protein, those kinds of things, I think people would find it very, very easy because it, I think in terms of eating out, there's such a prevalence of we can get you know, protein foods. Um, I do think you can also switch because now people are getting more power bowls and more, more grains and sure. quinoa and those kinds of things. So I think those things, if you have to talk about fast food, they're out there. You just have to look for them. It's with anything. You have to make those choices. Get used to it. Well, thank you so much. This has been very informative. My guest has been registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Geraldine Pinto, Ph.D., is an associate professor and head of the English department at St. Agnes College in Mangalore, India. She's won several short story competitions, but she sent us a poem that describes the cycle of life from a unique perspective. Here is a study in blue and black. In the clarity of death, cells twitch, a slow sucking inwards, crumple-walled, cytoplasm hardens, blood caught mid-flow gems into iolite, then darkens into deepest sapphire. Neurons cease to fire. Bursts of animal electricity pale into lavender, which is neither pink nor blue. Gusts of amethyst clouds settle their shadows on skin, lips, and nails, while life shuffles out on slow blue gouts. Then formalin lulls indigo into licorice black, and young anatomists peel away jet skin to expose the catacombs of webbed muscle and salted bones, and ink examination papers making new life out of old deaths. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how to save the life of someone overdosing on opioids. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.